Our sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we ask your grace and mercy upon us as we look at the topic today that is difficult, naughty, often misunderstood. Give us wisdom to understand it rightly. Give us wisdom to apply it correctly in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the text is 17 through 21, but to be honest, we're not going to exegete all of that. I'm not going to exegete all this. I'm going to look at a phrase, mainly look at a phrase in here that we tend to overlook. There's certain uh, sections, verses in the Bible that we just kind of slide over. Like, like we just slide over it like it's not a big deal. Or we don't think about it carefully because maybe we don't want to, whatever the case may be. But verse 17 is one of those verses that we kind of glide over and we don't think about very carefully. If we did, it would cause us to become either worried, probably worried, honestly, if our understanding of works are correct. So a lot of our understanding of good works comes from verses like Isaiah 64, 6. Okay, Isaiah 64, 6, a good verse in context, a good verse in context, says our good deeds are nothing but filthy rags. I mean, if you know this verse in Isaiah 64, and this verse has been used to imply... Whether the men saying it mean to imply this or not has been used to imply that there's no such thing really as good works, okay? Your works are always ugly. They're always nasty. They're never acceptable to God, okay? Never acceptable to God. Now, there's a measure of truth to that, okay? But we'll see. The Bible kind of contradicts that in a lot of places, and we've got to fit these things together, the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity does this as well. Okay, it's a true doctrine. You know, the tulip. First, first the T and tulip is total depravity. You may not have known that. Now you know. Okay, the T and tulip is total depravity. And we think about total depravity, and our version of total depravity in our minds is there is no such thing as a good work. Everyone is wicked. Think of Romans 1 or Romans 3. There is none good, no, not one. No one does good. No one is righteous. All of our deeds are like filthy rags, okay? I think a lot of us grew up in churches where this was the teaching, okay? This was the teaching. Well, the problem with that is, okay, verse 17, okay? The problem with that, and not just verse 17, the entire Bible is very clear that we are going to be judged on our works. You will be judged on your works. This is not some little doctrine tucked away in the corner somewhere. This is a dominant doctrine in Scripture. So you can see the problem here. Okay? Immediately the problem arises, if our works, if all of our works are as filthy rags and are nasty and ugly, and we're going to be judged by our works, then guess what? The day of judgment is not pleasant. The day of judgment is not something exciting for us. It's not something we're supposed to look forward to. It's terrifying. Okay, So what people typically do here is, a lot of people just ignore this. Okay? A lot of Protestants just ignore this altogether. The judgment by works, they're just like, no, I'm not even going to touch it, Okay, for whatever reason. Okay. Sometimes they kind of explain it away, and this is a very common doctrine today, where they explain this good works as if, like, it really doesn't mean good works. It's not really, it's talking about justification. It's not talking about sanctification, okay? 
doesn't mean good works. And then, of course, you have the Roman Catholic side where they pull in, and this is, I think, what a lot of Protestants are reacting against. The Roman Catholics pull good works in and make them, like, integral to our salvation, okay, in a way that our works and our salvation are so connected that without good works or the good works are not, they save us in a way that's not healthy. That's the best way to describe it. Because you've got lots of ways of handling this that are wrong, wrong. But what is the correct way to handle this, okay? So what the, the main point of this sermon is to get you to a place where you're confident you can stand before Jesus at the judgment day and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because of your works. Not just because of your works. We'll cover all that. But your works will be considered righteous, okay? That's where we got to get to because it's clear we're going to be judged on them. That's where we have to get to. So how do we get there without compromising the doctrine of salvation? How do we arrive at that point? Peter says here, we're going to be judged by our works, by a God who's not partial. There's no partiality. Everybody's judged the same way. How do we get to that place? Okay, and that's the goal of this sermon. Try to accomplish this. This is a naughty sermon. I'm telling you, I wrestled this thing. I wrestled this thing. So we'll see how, how this all works out here, okay? So first thing I want to do is just recap what I said last time, a couple weeks ago. Verses 13 through 16, what I said and what this text demonstrates is, is that if we're going to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to us at Jesus Christ, verse 13, then we are going to obey. Okay? We're going to be sober. We're going to gird up the loins of our mind. We're going to be obedient children. So what I talked about last time was obedience fuels our love for Christ. Obedience is not against our love for Christ, but it fuels it. The more we obey, the more we love Jesus. The more we obey, the more we cling to Jesus. Okay, these are not contradictory things. They're all part of the same thing. Okay, so now Peter answers the question, why do we conduct ourselves with fear? Okay, why are we obedient children? Okay, and he basically gives two things. He says something's future, it's judgment, and something past, the redeeming blood of Jesus. Okay, something's future, judgment, coming judgment. You want to conduct yourself with fear because of the coming judgment. That's what he's saying. Okay, and you want to conduct yourself with fear because you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now, this is redeemed by the blood of Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Why? Because I think we all get this. I think we understand what Jesus did for us at the cross. I'm going to circle back around to it at the end of the sermon, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I don't think a lot of us understand how the judgment, the final judgment, fits with our good works. How does this work together as a Christian, as Christians? All right? So just one, quali- I'm not going to qualify this sermon to death, but just one qualification here right at the beginning. Nothing I'm saying in this sermon is going to undermine Jesus as the sole source of our salvation. Your works are never the foundation for your salvation. Again, that nothing in the sermon should imply that. If you're thinking that's what Pastor Peter means, no, that's not what I mean, okay? But salvation is a whole picture. It's not just a point-in-time event. Your salvation is not one point in time that occurred back here. Your salvation is everything. And really, here in the passage, it starts before you were even born. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So your salvation stretches from before creation... Again, a naughty topic, but before creation, all the way to glorification. Your salvation is all of that. And we tend to think of salvation as just a single point in time. So good works are part of your salvation. Okay? doesn't mean it forms the foundation of it, but it's part of that being alive and being faith, having faith is our good works. They are part of it. If you don't have it, you're not saved. Okay? And you won't be saved without them. You won't be saved without good works without holiness. Okay, so we're going to kind of work that through. But nothing here is intended, and Peter doesn't do this in the passage. The scriptures doesn't, don't do this anywhere. Nothing's intended to make good works the foundation of your salvation, not Jesus. 
Jesus is the foundation for our salvation, okay? All right, so I'm gonna do this in a couple different ways here. We'll walk through. First, I'm gonna show you that God is judge and that there is this coming judgment and this judgment is according to good works, okay? So this is a teaching of scripture. We're gonna do that. And we're talking about what are good works? What, what is a good work, okay? And then we're gonna talk about how we should approach that and how we can do that. And the goal here is not presumption or anxiety. The goal here is peace and rest in Christ that leads to labor. That's the goal. All right, so first, first, um, let's talk about judgment. God, from the very beginning, is a judge, from the absolute very beginning of Scripture. In fact, even before sin enters the world, he's judging things, right? He sits there, he looks at his creation, what does he say? It is good. That's his judgment statement, right? It's not bad, it is good. So he judges. And in fact, the more I looked at this, the more I'm like, the entire Bible is basically God judging people. Right or wrong. That's how the whole thing functions. Cain was judged wicked. Abel was judged righteous. Noah was judged righteous. The world was judged as wicked. They were judged at the Tower of Babel. Abraham was righteous. These other people were wicked. Think of Abimelech and Pharaoh. Okay, remember, uh, they take Sarah, and Abimelech and Pharaoh are judged, and Abraham is not judged. God does not condemn Abraham for that. So, again, a difficult topic, but God does not condemn Abraham for that. Think about Joseph. Joseph is elevated. He is lifted up. He is judged to be righteous by God and lifted up. Think about Enoch. Why was Enoch taken? Because he pleased the Lord. Enoch pleased the Lord. He walked with the Lord. God was happy with Enoch. He judged him righteous, so he picked him up and took him. In fact, the entire Bible is basically God judging men righteous or judging men not righteous. This is like central to his character and who he is. It's not some sideline. A lot of people don't like the idea of judging. Okay? They don't, well, that, that's who God is. God is a judge. Now, he's a father too. In our passage, he's a father who's judging, not to judge, just not, not a guy sitting behind a bench. We tend to think of a judge as someone in a black robe sitting behind a bench. Okay? God is a father who is judging. He's a creator who is judging. Okay? He's not just some stoic judge sitting behind a bench, but he does judge. He is king, and what do kings do? What does King Solomon do? He judges. What does our king do? He judges. He determines. Why was Jerusalem destroyed in AD 70? Because they were judged. Okay? They were judged by God. You go to Revelation uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3 where, with the seven churches. They're being judged by Jesus. Jesus is judging. So this, the entire Bible is filled with God judging. Okay? This is the way it works. Okay? And you, so we're not surprised when we read that in the end, there's a great judgment. That's keeping with God's character. So let's look at a few of these verses that talk about this final judgment. All right? Psalm 98.9, we sing this. He is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. And equity there means without partiality, in truth. Okay? There are a lot of our pictures of Lady Justice. Lady Justice is blind. Okay? That's because Lady Justice, justice is supposed to judge without partiality. doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how poor you are, doesn't matter how great you are, how low you are, you're judged equally. And that's what Peter's saying here. Without partiality, God is going to judge. Okay? Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. We quoted this last time in reference to the fear of God, but listen to the end of the verse. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We look at this verse and we're like, how can that be? How can that be? Matthew 16, verses 26 through 27. For what profit is it to man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Okay, we know that verse. Okay, I think it was Jim Elliott's favorite verse. The missionary down there got killed. His favorite verse. But listen to the next verse. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Okay? According to his works. Acts 17.31. God has appointed, this is Mars Hill. Paul's preaching on Mars Hill. He says, God has appointed a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Okay? How do we know Jesus is judged? Well, he's been raised from the dead. Okay? He's going to sit and he's going to judge. Now listen to Romans 2. Okay? This is maybe one of the strongest ones. Okay? Romans 2. And we tend to explain this away. This verse away. But listen to it carefully. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, so he's talking about the day of judgment. And he's saying for those who are patient, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury. Again, strong terminology. Romans 14 says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul twice mentions the, judge, the final judgment in 2 Timothy, and 2 Timothy was the last book he, written, he wrote. We're going to circle back to 2 Timothy at the end of the sermon. Revelation 20 mentions the great judgment where all men will stand before the great white throne. And we go on and on. I'm sure you can think of other passages Think of Corinthians. I mean, part of, part of the difficulty with this sermon was the more I studied, the more verses just piled up. <laughs> I was telling somebody last night, hopefully I don't just keep quoting verses the whole sermon because that's what I feel like doing sometimes, okay? Because people don't believe this, okay? We're Protestants. We're like, good works must be Roman Catholic. I mean, they must be papist. If they're talking about good works, it's got to be papist. Well, it's in the Bible, and our Reformed fathers all agreed with it. Okay, so let me quote you from our confessions. This is from the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession says, the dead will be judged according to what they shall have done in this world, whether good or evil. He's not talking about the wicked dead. He's talking about all the dead. Okay? The righteous and the wicked will be judged by this. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which we'll come back to in a little bit, says, all men, not just the wicked, all men will give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds. Okay? All men will give an account to God. All the confessions also say, in various ways, that we will be rewarded for good works and the wicked will be punished for their wicked works. Okay? So there's this process that the Bible clearly indicates okay, of God judging both the righteous and the wicked okay, at the end of the world. This is not a, there is judgment in the present. There is judgment in the present time. But there's a judgment that comes at the end of the world and we will all have to stand and give an account. Okay, so how do, how do we handle this? How do we fit this together with salvation by grace through faith alone? How do these things tie together? All right. Are works necessary for salvation? Or are works like an option? An optional. You, know, you can have them if you want them or not, but you'll get there one way or another. Okay? Does the Bible teach that salvation is partly of grace and faith and partly of works? Okay? This is kind of the Roman Catholic view. So you can say that's wrong. It doesn't teach that. Okay? How can salvation be free and gracious if we are judged by our works? How does this happen? Okay, how does this occur? Okay, and the answer to this is found in Jesus. Okay, the answer is found in Jesus. The answer is that you as a Christian are already clean. So your works are already clean. Your works are already righteous. 
okay, as a Christian. So your good works, everything, and we'll walk this through, but I'm kind of giving you a, a sort of precursor here. The good works that you do are done in faith, in obedience to God's word, and therefore they are pleasing to the Lord. Okay, that's what, that's how we can reach a place where this phrase in Peter does not frighten us. This phrase in Peter does not concern us, like terrify us, all right? It is something good. We look forward to the judgment day, okay? The, the scriptures are filled with this. Christians long for that day. The judgment day for them is not something to be terrified of or frightened of. It's something they look forward to, okay? So what are, let's talk a little bit about good works, then we'll circle back around to Jesus and what Jesus did for us and how that fits in, and we'll talk about some of the applications of this, all right? So what are good works? Okay, and this is really the question. How do we get our works into the category of good? Okay, and a lot of Christians, again, would say, you can't. You don't even need to worry about it. There's good, there are good Professor, well, good. There are professors at, at important reform seminaries who will tell you that the only thing you need to worry about is ju- your justification. You don't need to worry about your sanctification because your works are never good. They're never pleasing to God. That is contrary to the Bible. The Bible is very clear that Christians can do things that God is pleased with, that he's happy with, and he expects us to. He expects us to. expects us to get there. Okay, so let's talk about good works. Good works are works done in obedience to God that is in accord with his word, and arising out of faith in Christ. That is good work, okay? So good work is not just somebody doing something nice for somebody, okay? It has to arise out of faith. So a non-Christian can do something that's beneficial for someone else, but they cannot do a good work. It is an impossibility, okay? Because good works arise out of faith in Christ. How much faith? Okay, and I'm, if you grew up, churches I grew up in, this was kind of a constant question. How much faith do we, well, just the teensy, teensy, teeny little bit. How much faith does it take? You don't have to have faith like this. The tiniest little bit of faith makes you saved. This is what Jesus says. And sometimes we keep looking in, we're like, do I have enough faith? Do I have enough faith? Is this, is this good work covered enough? Okay. And the answer is, do you trust Jesus? Yes. Well, then it is. Okay. It is covered. Okay. How much faith do you need? Just the tiniest little bit. That's all it takes. And we tend to look inward. So Works done out of faith in Christ. So if you're trusting in Jesus, then your works are good. Okay, now I'm not talking about sin. That's a different category. I'm talking about works. I think we all understand how to handle sin. We confess our sin and we repent of it, we turn from it. We understand it. But the trouble often with us is what do we do with our good works? Are they do we need to repent of our good works as well? In fact, there's a I can't remember who it was, popped in my head here. But it may have been Martin Lord James or somebody said, we need to repent even of our good works. Okay. Well, I understand kind of what he's getting at, but really that's not very biblical, okay? That's really not what the Bible says. The Bible does not encourage us to repent of our good works, okay? They're good. They're pleasing. God is happy with what you do if you're in him, okay? So listen to some language from the Westminster Confession here on good works. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his word, okay? So good works are those things God has commanded. Anything else is a sin. You know, if you're doing things God hasn't commanded or disobedient to God, that's a sin, okay? Good works are what's commanded in the word. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. They show you are alive, okay? And this is where we have to understand our salvation means we become alive. What does a living person do? What did Lazarus do when he came out of the grave? Just stand there and say, oh, now I'm resurrected. No, he went and did stuff. He ate, he drank, he did other things. Okay? And so when we're born again, when we're brought into the church and made part of God's covenant, we start growing up. We're alive. And what do we do? We bear fruit. And that fruit is pleasing to the Lord. Okay? It's pleasing to the Lord. So listen to what it says. 
Evidence of true and lively faith, and by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance. Okay? One of the best ways you can grow in your assurance of salvation is by becoming more holy, by growing in righteousness. Okay? Edify their brethren, obviously your good works, strengthen your brethren. They adorn the profession of the gospel. The world cannot see your heart. <laughs> the the non-believer cannot see your heart. How do they know about Jesus? By what you do or what you say. It has to be, it's got, it has to be manifest and revealed. Okay? You can't adorn the profession of the gospel in your soul. <laughs> you have to adorn it with works. Stop the mouths of adversaries. Okay? And Peter's going to talk about that as we go through how good works stop the mouths of our adversaries. And they glorify God, whose workmanship they are, again, quoting from Ephesians 2, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus, thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. Okay? So good works are a path to, or better, perhaps better said, a part of eternal life. Okay? Without them, we don't get there. And that's not because they're the foundation, but because they're the fruit. Okay? If Lazarus had never come out of the grave... We would not say he was raised from the dead. We'd say he's still dead, okay? A couple other things about good works in here. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, okay? So our good works come from Christ and the Spirit of Christ. He enables us to do these good works according to the good pleasure of God. Yet, this is what the confession says, they are not hereupon to grow negligent as if they were bound to perform any duty only by a special motion of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the idea here is that good works are not, you don't get this sort of special um, impulse from the Spirit to do a good work. Good works are what normal, everyday, faithful Christians do all the time. Okay? When, you, when you run your home the way it's supposed to, when you pray, when you honor your husband, or when you love your wife, or when you care for your children, or when you work hard, these are good works. God is pleased with those. They're covered in the blood of Jesus. Are they perfect? Well, no. No, they're not perfect, okay? And this is part of where we get all tied up in nuts. We're like, oh, that work, that work wasn't quite perfect. Well, what does a father do? When a child brings him, you know, five-year-old kid's carving something and brings it to his dad, and he says, dad says it's a duck, and he's like, no. The kid's like, no, it's a bear. <laughs> it's kind of clunky and ugly. The dad's not like, oh, well, that's really stupid. Go back and do it again. I hope the dad doesn't do that. The dad says, that's great, thanks. This is what God does for us. Yes, our works are clunky, but he's pleased with them. He's happy with them. Okay? John Calvin has one of my favorite John Calvin quotes is, and I quote it all the time. When God accepts the man, God accepts his works. When God accepts the man, God accepts his works. So the goal is not for us to be tied up in knots, all the time worried about whether God is pleased with us, whether this is enough, okay? whether this is enough or not. And so a couple different ways this, that we can mess up with this. One thing I think when it comes to good works, we often look at it as great works. Okay? We don't look at it as ordinary Christian living. Okay? So we think about great works, we think about missionaries or pastors or things like that, people doing great works. The scriptures are very clear, and Ephesians is really strong on this, Colossians 2, Peter's good on this, that the way you love Jesus is by being faithful where you are, okay? by being faithful where you are. The good works are done where you are at. They're not done someplace you wish you were at and someplace amazing over there. And a lot of times it's easier to think about that. You know, it's kind of like the husband who loves his wife says, I would die for her, I would die for her, but he won't go help her with everyday stuff. You know, I'll jump in front of a truck and save her, but he won't go help her with everyday stuff. And sometimes we're like that with Jesus. Well, Jesus, I would do anything for you. Well, you know what? I want you to be faithful at work. Well, not that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, Jesus. Okay. 
Good works are ordinary, everyday faithfulness. And this is what Ephesians teaches us. The first three chapters of Ephesians are filled with this grand, lofty language about how great this redemption is, how great the church is. We're outside the covenants of promise. We've been brought in, made part of the people of God. And so all these great, this high, lofty language, some of the highest in the New Testament. And you would think you get to chapter 4, Paul's going to be like, okay, go be a missionary. No. What does Paul say? He said, don't lie. Work hard. Love your wife. Respect your husband. Obey your parents. All this normal, everyday stuff that's not very exciting. Those are good works. Those are good works. God is pleased with those. Pleased with that, okay? So, (laughs) good works are normal, everyday obedience done by normal Christians as they work with faith in Christ. That's what good works are, okay? And just one more illustration here. There were 16 million soldiers, who, American soldiers, who fought in World War II. 16 million, okay, somewhere around it. How many names do you know from World War II? Maybe some of you old folks might know a few more, you know? Maybe, maybe if you're a real history buff, you might know 20, 25, maybe 30? 30 of those 16 million? Most of those guys were just faithful doing what they're supposed to do. They're faithful private, faithful second lieutenant, faithful here, faithful there. Most of us are going to be in that category, okay? Most of us are not going to be big names, really important, lifted up. Most of us are just need to be faithful Christians doing good works day in and day out. That's what God calls us to. And you know what? When we do that, guess what? He's happy with us. He's pleased with us. He looks down and says, yeah, they're doing a good job. He's pleased with people all throughout the Bible. But for some reason, we wake up in the morning and say, is God pleased with me? Okay? God is pleased with his people. Okay? Pleased with his people. Right? And again, the illustration of a father is really helpful here. A father will discipline his children. But he disciplines them out of love. And a father accepts those works that are not perfect. Okay? We got A lot of you have a lot of different kids in your home. You got like a five-year-old and a 15-year-old. They're at different places. They're growing. And in the church, it's the same way. But the father's pleased with the 15-year-old, and he's pleased with the five-year-old, and he's pleased with the seven-year-old, and he's pleased with his 30-year-old son who's gotten married and having kids. And do, He's pleased with that. Okay? Good father, that's what he loves. These are my beloved children whom I'm well pleased. God says that to you. That's how God sees you. That's how God sees your works. He's pleased with them. And this is why when it says, without partiality, judges to each one's work, the point is not to terrify us. The point is to encourage us. Help us to rest in Christ. Okay, so let me address a couple different groups here real quick when it comes to this final judgment. All right? So some of you here have tender consciences, and you're always concerned about your salvation. I had a friend of mine in my old church. He was a great guy, a great Christian, but every time you turned around, he thought, am I falling away? Am I with Jesus? And no, no one else thought that. I mean, this is the funny thing, okay? No one else looked at him and go, oh, here's a guy that's slipping away from Jesus. No, this, everybody looked at him and said, here's a faithful Christian. But he thought in his head right, that every time he turned around, he was going to drift away. And some people have tender consciences like this. Remember when I was a kid, every time I committed a grievous sin, I would ask God to save me again. How many of you guys ever did that? Every time. If I lied to mom and dad, I'd go lay, lay back on my bed and be like, Lord, please save me. I must not even be saved, okay? I'm not even a Christian. Okay? And there's some tender consciences like that. If that's, your, if that's the way you're functioning, you need to stop worrying, okay? If that's the way you're thinking, you're, you're really close to the kingdom. You're in the kingdom, okay? You don't need to be worried about that. The person who's worried about their salvation is not the one that I am going to worry 
about their salvation, okay? They're, they're thinking about following Jesus. They're tr- trying to grow and trying to be mature and trying to follow Jesus. That person has no concerns. So some of you have really tender consciences, and you need to look at the Bible, look at the outward things, stop looking into your heart. A lot of people with tender consciences look inside and get tied up in knots, dangerous place to go. Look at your works, ask your friends, hey, am I being faithful? I guarantee what they're going to say. Yeah, I see you grow. You're doing fine, okay? Some of you, though, and this is part of what this, this phrase in Peter's designed to do, some of you are not growing in holiness. Okay? Some of you are lethargic in your Christian walk, and sin does have dominion over you. Now, part of believing the gospel is believing the threats in the gospel as well. Not just the good things, but believing the threats in the gospel as well. And I'm not talking about little sins. I'm talking about little sins you're repenting of and you're seeing victory over. But there is a sin that has dominion in your life and you are not overcoming it, you need to talk to somebody, preferably a pastor, an elder, or maybe a good older friend. Okay, this is part of what 1 John's about. It's part of what this passage is about, part of what other, uh, some of Paul's teaching is about. You cannot allow sin to have dominion over you and claim you are growing in faith. Okay, those are opposites. Now, you can sin, so I've got to be careful here. I don't want to create anxiety. We do sin, all of us sin, every day in thought, word, and deed. This is what the confession says. This is right. We do. We sin every day. But there's a difference between sinning, confessing, growing, moving on, and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. And that sin slowly is taking hold of you. Maybe it's bitterness. I mean, there's a whole list I could go through here. Okay? But if you are struggling with overcoming sin, this word is here for you. The threat is there. Okay? You don't want to get there and be like, I don't have any good words. And the way you get you the way you deal with that is by looking and getting some help. So I would encourage you, if you are struggling with sin, if in the sense that it's not you're not winning, you're not winning the battle. Okay? If you're not winning the battle, get some help. Okay? Find somebody. Okay? And you're here. So my guess is, if you're not winning the battle, you want to, but you might need some help in getting there. Okay. And the third group, and I think this is most of us. Most of us fit in this category. We're being faithful to Jesus. We're growing. We're confessing our sins. We're growing in holiness. Yeah, some weeks are bad. Some days are bad. Some months are bad for some of us, right? We have bad months. But overall, if you look at the scope of our last two, three years, we can see growth. We can see maturity. You don't need to be ashamed to say that. Sometimes we're embarrassed by that. We're embarrassed to say, well, I am growing in Jesus. Well, who are you? Sounds kind of cocky of you to pretend like you're growing in Jesus. No, it's a good thing. You're supposed to grow in Jesus. Okay, now you don't want to act like it's all of you and not Jesus' work in you. But for most of us, we're being faithful to Christ. We're growing in good works. And what we need to do is just be grateful. One of the best things you can do is look back over your last few years and see where God's been faithful to you, see where he's helped you grow, see where he's helped you overcome sin, and be thankful. And then perseverance. We need to persevere. For some of us, there's a lot of young people in here. You have a lot of years of perseverance ahead of you. You know, if you're 20 years old, you live to be 80, you got 60 years left. It's a long time. <laughs> 60 years is a long time. But you got to persevere. And this, a lot of the Bible is just about, hey, don't stop. Keep going. Don't give up. Okay? So with those good works, we need to make sure uh, most of us are in the category of being faithful to Jesus and want to make sure we keep doing that and give thanks to God. Okay? So let me illustrate this from Paul's life um, real quick. So in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, he says this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. 
And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. The word there is sober, if you remember the last sermon, sober in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run like this, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So the threat of disqualification drove Paul to good works. It drove Paul to be faithful. It drove Paul to do what was right. He's like, I'm not just sitting here hoping it works out. I'm not beating the air. I'm not running with uncertainty. I don't know where I'm going. He says, no, I have a plan. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm trying to accomplish because I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to be disqualified. Now, obviously, Paul would say, I do that because I want to please Jesus too. But that, that threat of disqualification, Paul understood that, and he took it seriously. Just blow it off like it doesn't really matter. No, he could be disqualified. Now, let's flip forward a few years to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Well, we'll do 6, 7, and 8. And this is the end of Paul's life. 2 Timothy's last book Paul wrote. He probably knew he was going to die okay, soon. Here's what he says. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I'm going to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul knew he had been faithful. And that's where I want you to be. When you get to that deathbed, I want you to say that with confidence. I know I've been faithful to Jesus. And you can. I think a lot of us are like, can I really know? Yes, you can. It's not magic. Okay. It's quantifiable. <laughs> this is kind of the point. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So the point with its good works, all this discussion about good works, is I want us to see that Jesus has given us faith. He has brought us into his kingdom. We're accepting him, and therefore your works are pleasing to God. You can say legitimately at the end of your life, Assuming you persevere to the end, I have fought the good fight. And you're not just guessing. You're not just guessing. So back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, uh, the text ends not with the judgment, but it ends with the redemption of Christ. And I want to take a couple minutes and talk about this briefly. Okay? Paul, Peter says this, Knowing you're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so your faith and hope are in God. And if you remember, the beginning of this section is about the hope in God too. So he begins and ends with this hope in God. And there's this future judgment, but there's this past redemption. We have been bought out. It is the cross, this precious blood of Jesus, more precious than a lamb, without spot or blemish, more precious than that, that gives us is the foundation. It's where we always go back to, to that cross. And that cross isn't just about forgiveness. That cross is about holiness. It's about sanctification. It's about the whole breadth of our salvation. Yes, your sins are forgiven at the cross, but you also get the spirit. You get the sanctification. So the salvation is a whole thing. We know that God in his kindness has sent his only begotten son to save us from sin and death. Sin, Satan, and death. This is our hope. When we set our hope on Christ, we know we are accepted in the beloved. Again, Ephesians, accepted in the beloved, one of my favorite little phrases. Accepted in the beloved. And we will be a people zealous for good works. And the day of judgment will not be a day of terror, but instead of day of joy. As God is glorified when he gives us a crown and he says, 
well done, good and faithful servant, and you will not be surprised. You won't be shocked. Like, whoa, I didn't know that. You'll be like, yes, I was faithful. Because of Jesus, because of his work, because of the Spirit, I was faithful all the way to the end. And those good works, God will say, they're pleasing to me. They're good. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's where we want to be. It's faith and trust in God. So the day of judgment is not terrifying, but joyful for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this. Surely a lot of um, different texts, a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different uh, theologians have discussed this down through the ages. Most of all, Lord, we want to be a people who are fruitful. We want to be people who rest in Christ. And out of that rest, out of that easy yoke and that light burden, we bear fruit. So give us grace and mercy to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.